You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. It is things like culture, it's things like values, it's leadership. It's not simply the operational element of putting on a good match day. It's making sure that the fans are actually a key business priority within the club. The common opportunity is not that the clubs don't have assets or don't have a good experience, is that they keep quiet about it. If your wife or husband doesn't like football, they're going to ask questions like, will there be good food for kids? The answer's probably no. Can we park close to the stadium? The answer's probably no. Will the stewards be friendly? The answer's probably no. It just makes it very, very difficult for someone who perhaps lost touch with football when they were 17 or 18 to re-engage with it if they can't present it as a more inclusive, more entertaining experience. Hi there, welcome to Sports Content Strategy. My guest this time is Mark Bradley, who's a director of the Fan Experience Company. A lot of people are talking a big game about what the fan experience is and how to offer value on a match day to fans of all ages. But what are they actually doing about it? And is this a real business opportunity for all those clubs who are perhaps not likely to win the Champions League or be competing in the Champions League year on year? TV money won't be quite so important to them. And is it better in the long term to grow depth of support rather than squeeze every single pip out of their fan base in order to throw at the team? We also discuss specific strategies, what's worked in his experience, what hasn't worked, and the future for this particular area of the game. You can find me, Mr Richard Clark, on all social media. You can find Mark as well. I'll put all his links in the show notes. Sports Content Strategy is also out there on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. But let's get on with it. Let's talk about the fan experience, what it is, how to improve it, and let Mark introduce himself. I'm Mark Bradley. I founded the Fan Experience Company some 14 years ago, and we work with leagues, associations, federations, and and sometimes with clubs to help them become more sustainable, and principally through improving the quality of the fan experience, helping them engage with different fan groups, improve the experience um, overall and and produce more sustainable outcomes. And of course, that depends on what sustainability is for clubs. For some clubs, it's uh, it's gaining fans. For some, it's maintaining fan base while things aren't going well on the pitch. And for others, it's losing fans at a rate that's actually slower than they were previously. So it's kind of a, it's a catch-all term. Um, but yeah, that, in a nutshell, that's what we do. And that's brought out a topic... I was going to dive into in the middle of this podcast, but you, you brought it out straight away because the first thing you said was sustainability. That's about making a return on your investment uh, and further investment into that club to to grow in all areas. And yet, a lot of clubs would put fan engagement on on another side of that. It's to keep the fans happy in mm-hmm. order for us to do what we need to do commercially, which is where the real money is and that's what's going to make us grow. But you're coming straight away from... A position of sustainability, which which means there is money at the end of this, yes? There is. And there's a couple of things worth saying as well that fan engagement will come to hopefully because it's a term that everybody bats around at the moment. There is no clear accepted definition of what it is. We have our view as to what it is. But you know, the, the digital world is is has taken to it very quickly and that's that's valid. They're entitled to use that for some of the things they do. So I guess I guess you know probably the starting point is is you know what do we mean by fan engagement and um, we tend to work with leagues and clubs and federations that are not what you might call at the elite level of of income. 
So, for example, um, if you and, and you know, I'm generalising here, and the figures might not be exact, but the bottom line is that clubs in the English Premier League, for example, will make 90% perhaps of their income revenue through off the pitch arrangements, commercial deals, partnerships, TV, etc., and only maybe 10% or even less through through ticket revenue. For everybody outside of that kind of group of clubs and leagues around Europe, it's the other way around. You know, they they need to generate ticket revenue, to increase ticket revenue, um, because that can account for 90, 95% of their income. You know, so for engagement at a club where you really don't need to worry about, you know, the numbers, um, that will probably be global. That's trying to develop global fan bases in the Far East and America, South America, Africa, and that's largely going to be digital. But for those who are outside of the elite and who are looking to, you know, get their, maximize their ticket revenue, then a lot of what they have to do will be around the match day experience. So as a consequence, when we talk about fan engagement, we are, we are thinking about the sort of things clubs need to do strategically and tactically to maximize attendances uh, who are not in a position to, you know, simply become sustainable through continuous large sum investment through big deals across the globe, et cetera, et cetera. So again, if you tie all of that together, that explains why, you know, we're working with, um, with, with leagues where we don't work with the Premier League, but why we work with the EFL, the Superliga in Denmark, the Eredivisie, um, up in Estonia as well, you know, and uh, the National League, FA Women's Super League and Championship, where ticket revenue is really important and where attendances need to be driven up. I suppose my question was, while fan engagement might be seen as, some cynics might say it's the fluffy stuff. It's the it's the family that the family uh, centres, the family stands, the stewarding to make them more friendly, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You're actually saying there's a there's a, a positive financial benefit at the end, and not only saying that, but leading off on that. That was kind of my point. Yeah, and I'm pleased you said that because in the early days we did get a few people thinking that, you know, why are they obsessed with families? I mean, that's just one of the programs we run. Um, but one of the reasons that we are obsessed with families is because of the opportunity they represent for clubs. You're talking about three, four people instead of one. You're talking about a group of people that actually are easier to engage with, a group of people who are generally early adopters, a group of people who will use, um, uh, you know, social media. For for something like, like families, um, the starting point was that the family experience anecdotally was very poor. It needed addressing. There were opportunities to address it. But the actual uh, reason for, for using families as, as a catalyst in many of the projects we do is exactly because they do represent a much um, easier group of people to work with. In terms of numbers, you can grow those numbers very quickly. They tend to be, um, if you like, less less emotional, shall we say, in terms of dealings with the club than some other, some other groups. Um, that's important. But to say that, you know, and this is what people said, oh, it's just the fluffy stuff, it's just, it's just family stands. When we talk about fan engagement, we're talking about what any other business would call customer engagement. And that is everything the business does, pro, uh, kind of pre-commercial. So, you know, it's, it's about creating an environment, creating um, a feeling amongst fans, driving that kind of emotional loyalty that you get. Now, naturally, fans are emotionally loyal to their club. That's true. But actually, emotional loyalty is something that leads fans to be more forgiving, 
to be more supportive, to speak more positively, to support the club through through bad times, to support new ideas at the club. And that works across all of the different fan segments. It's easier in some than it is in others. And we work with uh, an away fan project with the EFL, for example, which is, you know, again, that, that's something which, you know, almost, there's kind of a cultural requirement sometimes built into clubs that we, well, we can't treat away fans well. You know, it's kind of, they're the enemy. Well, of course, they are they are the enemy in 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 respect as in, in in the fact that they are supporting our rivals. But you know we're going to keep I don't know ninety five percent of the ticket revenue, and if we're not selling out our away end, surely if treating them better led to more of them travelling, then clearly that's another form of fan engagement that directly impacts on revenue. And we know, for example, with the football league work, the EFL with the Family Excellence Awards, the first ten years of that scheme led to a thirty seven percent increase in junior attendance, more than 6 million more kids attending um, EFL fixtures. They've now just reached their record levels of aggregate attendances since 1959. So that's 60-year high. And, you know, when you talk to the clubs, they put a lot of that down to diversifying the fan base. And the only proactive intervention that I'm conscious of on that front that's of any significance is, is the, um, the family work. So, you know, so we're, we're pretty clear that it makes a, a, a difference. I guess the question for me is, what is it and what does it look like and how, how does anyone do it? You know, and that's kind of where the where the debate is. It's what, you know, what is what is fan engagement? What does it mean to a club at this level? What does it mean to a club at that level? What does it look like? What does the fan engagement strategy look like? What are the things you should be doing? What are the KPIs? And, you know, what are the best practices that are out there already? So that's what kind of interests us. And, you know, it is something that, you know, I was talking to someone at a university the other day that they, they struggle to find anyone globally. Um, I mean, they were very kind to come to me, but they were saying there are very few people out there globally who are able to give anything, any kind of a coherent explanation on what fan engagement is and how it drives revenue. Uh, but I think my point is, if you go back to customer engagement in other businesses, um, it is things like culture, it's things like values, it's leadership, it's not simply the operational element of putting on a good match day, it's making sure that the fans are actually a key business priority within the club. And of course, as, as, as you know, Rich, from, from, you know, from your time in the game, you've got um, clubs where things like marketing and communications are established uh, business functions, ticketing and operations are, are established business functions, but actual, actually what you would have in any other business that would be you know, uh, director of customer engagement you know, just doesn't exist in football, or at least it didn't until very recent times. And, so the- and if they do exist, they're very junior. Yes, that's true. They don't have the gravitas to push through some great yeah. ideas. And that's another thing I wanted to come through, that this is kind of growing in importance. You've come in from a customer service background and you've been doing this, what, 10, 15 years, something like that. But certainly, my opinion, I'll, I'll be interested in a view of this, that 15 years ago, football didn't think it had to try very hard. That's and, true. And in yeah. the 15 years, how much has it changed? And is football trying a lot harder in this space? I think, yes, undeniably. Yeah, it definitely is. And, you know, there are, there are a number of reasons for that. Um, you know, there are, there are reasons of external perceptions. I think, you know, it's fair to say that when we started, and, um, and that was around 2005, um, external perceptions of football were pretty negative. So if through fan engagement related activities, you can soften those external perceptions, then that's going to be really important. I mean, just from a personal perspective, um, you know, the um, there are very few journalists and I'm talking about the broadsheet kind of deep dive 
stories who've really investigated some of the good things clubs, leagues and associations are doing. You know, the, the, the kind of starting point is always, and I can understand this with some justification, that, well, you know, they must be up to no good. <laughs> you know, so let's have a look more deeply at this. But when you've got some really good news stories out there, I mean, take the, you know, the, the family excellence scheme at the EFL, um, you know, the, the, the huge increase in junior attendance there is, is pretty remarkable. And it is starting to affect the way um, the external world sees football. I mean, the reason I got involved in the first place was 2000, 2001, where the government had just gone through the creation of the football task force. And the general message was we need football to demonstrate that it's got the best interests of supporters at heart or words to that effect. And my first involvement in football was to share good practices and good strategies from other businesses that were renowned for being champions of customers. You know, so whether it was the early days of Virgin, whether it was Pret, you know, whether, whether it was Innocent Drinks, whether it was Bromford Housing, whether it was, you know, um, Amazon, all of these businesses that that um, that, that, that put the, the customer at the center of what they do, um, I was sharing examples of what they did uh, to people in football clubs back in 2000, 2001. And I guess the prime aim there was to directly uh, address the fact that um, external perceptions of football were were, were still pretty poor, maybe not as poor as they were in the days of Maggie Thatcher and the ID card scheme. But certainly, you know, you see, you see it now in terms of uh, stewarding, you know, that um, we're already seeing games. I think it was Grimsby and Scunthorpe, you know, that game's already had to be brought forward, both the home and the away game, on the assumption that there will be trouble, you know. And yes, yet this doesn't happen, you know, at Ascot when there are fist fights and brawls all over the place. It doesn't happen in rugby. It doesn't happen when there's trouble in cricket. You know, football still occupies that position where it's just not, it's just not fully trusted. And, you know, I know you could go all the way back to gatherings of working class men at the end of the Second World War and the government worrying that we might have a Russian revolution. <laughs> you know, kind of that, there's even, you know, there's even the explanation that goes back to that, to that. So a lot of what we do, especially when we're working at league levels, is helping the leagues to, to create more positive perceptions about what it is they do. And I think part, this way it gets into kind of the specifics that we do, improving the fan experience for different groups, you know, can have a very powerful impact. So, you know, you look at women and girls, obviously, in the news right now, Women's World Cup, which has been fantastic, you know, for getting that into people's discussions, getting it onto the agenda. And obviously what interests me is that people now start to support their local club. They now start to turn up to those to those games. But, you know, it needs to be a good experience. It needs to be different to what people might expect, because if it just becomes the women's version of the men's game, and, you know, you have poor quality refreshments, miserable stewards and some of the things that have characterized the men's game over the over the decades. You're not going to keep those people because by definition, this is a much more diverse audience that's looking to engage. They want much more than 90 minutes. You know, you look at the number of people coming to see NFL UK, the number of people that wanted to see the Major League Baseball last weekend. You know, they're looking for much more than than, than the sport. And they are two sports that deliver that. In, in you know in, in in big numbers and what we need football to do is to recognize that part of growth comes from diversification and if you're going to diversify you need to look at that experience and rethink elements of it i'll give you one little example with women and um fam let's say families but women and girls in particular if you look at the standard fan zone around europe believe me we've looked at a lot of fan zones around europe the broad kind of components will be drinking uh, a big screen showing another live game and live music. But it's undeniably quite a male phenomenon. You know, it's kind of 
you know, you could argue that, but a couple of academics have recently written around this subject and said that that is part of one of the barriers that needs to be addressed to open up and diversify football audiences. They were suggesting something called a family zone. And of course, that made me smile because, you know, there are a lot of clubs in the UK who've operated these things successfully for many years, from Colchester to Aston Villa, Middlesbrough and others who've done, who've done great work. Um, but it was interesting this academic should not be aware that these things existed and should actually put forward the concept of a, of a family zone as the way to address this. But again, that's another little you know, thing that you can do. So by adding things like you know, speed tests, uh, skills tests, face painting, opportunities to measure yourself against the tallest player in the team, you know, player appearances, player access, um, you know, a mascot on social media who can engage you know, 24-7, not just at the match day, you, know, you can really start to change people's perceptions. And I guess, you know, being selfish as well, when we started, how hard was it for me to persuade my family that they should travel or that I should be able to go and see Sunderland play? You know, most people would say, just don't, because it won't be much fun. But we're 100 miles away from the Stadium of Light. And, you know, 10, 15 years ago, if I wanted to go, I'm working during the week, I'm a family man. It, it would be a lot easier if the family came with me. It would be a lot easier if I could have said at the time that it's going to be a great day for the kids. They'd love it. You know, and then I wouldn't feel slightly guilty about taking half the weekend, you know, to go and watch my football team. But back then, in general terms, it was very difficult. You know, if if, if the partner in, in if your wife or husband doesn't like football, they're going to ask questions like, "Will there be good food for kids?" The answer's probably no. Can we park, you know, close to the stadium? The answer's probably no. Will the stewards be friendly? The answer's probably no. You know, and um, it it just makes it very very difficult for someone who perhaps lost touch with football when they were seventeen or eighteen for for many reasons to re-engage with it if they can't present it as a more inclusive, more entertaining experience. You know, so that's that's another angle. Let's dive into the process that you go through in order to create a fan engagement strategy for a club. So, what are the key questions you ask of a club at the start? What the club represents, that's the number one question. The question, why? Um, Julian Jenkins, who um, did a lot of good work at Cardiff City over the years, um, he, he used to start with that one. I mean, it comes from Simon Sinek, you know, if you, if you, if you read his books, it's the same principle. It, and, 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 and arguably, football has more of a right to ask that question than, than brands, because, you know, most brands, most retail brands out there, their whole concept of brand and values is is nothing more than artifice. It's it's developed something to present itself positively to its audience. Whereas in football, although not necessarily easy to sort of unravel all the different meanings that that club has to its community, it actually means more emotionally. You know, and I often found it interesting to compare, you know, somebody like Starbucks, you know, who who is selling a commodity that a lot of us you know, it's not really the coffee that drags you into Starbucks. It's it's kind of what it represents to the people who use it. It's 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 kind of um, overall customer experience, and and yet the commodity it has is is just coffee. But it builds this this powerful experience around it. And ter- certainly in terms of consistency across the world, wherever you go, you get you get a very similar experience. But football that has this kind of amazing power that you know that people would ask for their relatives' ashes to be laid on the, the stand where they stood, you know, that, that, um, that amount of power in, in the connection that it has with people. And yet we, all we do is just try and sell all of that as a ticket, you know? And so there's a kind of, there's two extremes there that, you know, football sh- 
I mean, football shouldn't be copying Starbucks in terms of, you know, what it does. But football has a right to actually have values. So my first question is always, what does the club mean to its community? What is the club for? You know, if there were three clubs in this town and only one could exist, what would be your, you know, what what would you say? What do you bring to the community? And the sad thing is, actually, a lot of club owners don't know that. A lot of fans do, but, but a lot but, of club but, owners don't. But aren't their answers always going to be the same or similar? If it's like, what is this club for? Well, to win football clubs, to uh, win football games, to serve the community, to make our fans proud. Aren't yeah. those answers always going to be the same, or or versions of the same well, thing? It, it, I think the evidence is that if you look at a club like Lewis, you know yeah. that's yeah. certainly not the same as anyone else. Dulwich Hamlet isn't. Clapton isn't. Forest- but, it, but in those broad themes, aren't they the same? Albeit the specifics are different. I mean, Lewis. I used to play cricket outside the dripping pan as it goes for Lewis St. Michael about 20 years ago. So I know the dripping pan very well. Uh, yeah. Very uh, unique stadium. And Lewis is a very unique place as well. Um, but um, but aren't they? isn't it still about community? Isn't it about victory? Isn't it about success? Isn't it about pride? Aren't those things very similar, albeit the specifics might be different? That's my point. Um, I take your point, and yet it's somehow everybody wants to win. Everybody wants to be successful on the pitch. But if you want to grow and you want to grow sustainably, what is it that makes your club distinct or different? And, you know, I I don't think when we started that you could even get to that point of the conversation because so many people had never thought about it. What what makes us – because, you know, the point you made, Rich, earlier about uh, that it felt it didn't have to try. So now we're in the era of trying then you've got, to have to, you've got to look at what it is that makes you different. I mean, you know, if there, if there are three components, let's talk about Estonia where we're working with UEFA on a project that's aimed at actually getting people to go in the first place, you know, because very few people go to Estonian football and it was in the hundreds, low hundreds, um, even as recently as 18 months ago. And that's at their, 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 their top tier. There's three issues we focused on. One was the fan experience, making it better because it was purely football driven nothing other than maybe toilets and a, and a turnstile, and it was just football. The second thing was um, getting out into the community. So having people at each club uh, going out to schools, taking players, showing them the joy of football, you know, the players telling their stories. But the third, and actually the first in, in terms of priority, was understanding what does this club mean? What does it represent? What could it represent? You know, and by definition, that was taking people away from football because the one thing that that, that, that connected all of the clubs was we all play football. You know, so the, I mean, this goes back to a comment my other half made when we first did some pilot work for the um, the EFL around 15 years ago. We visited 30 consecutive matches: Saturday, Tuesday, Sunday, Wednesday, with uh, Anna and the kids in tow. And at the end, I said to her, "Which one did you like best?" And she said, well, it's very hard to say. I said, why is that? She said, because they're actually all the same. To someone new, it was all the same. And she even, I mean, the phrase she came up with was same song, different words. When you think about the chants, it's the same tune with just one or two modifications. You know, so she said, what is it that's going to appeal to me? What is it that's going to appeal to other people, you know, who who who, who want to come, who want something to do? And this gets complicated because you know you've got a you've got a series of increasing circles of people who you might potentially attract to your club. You've got people like me who just need a nudge. It might be geographical reasons or it might be work life balance reasons that I don't attend. I just need a nudge, and once I'm back, I'm back. 
But there are others that need more than a nudge. And those include people who are looking for something for their kids to do when they get bored, you know, looking for something that's longer than just 90 minutes, looking for something that has community elements to it. You know, so again, you can see that this, this whole idea of fan engagement, it needs to start with this premise of why. Why would people come to us? What makes us unique? Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, I did a lot of work with Indonesian clubs about trying to find their story. And mm. I defined it slightly differently. My definition of the why was what is the story that the fans tell themselves as mm. to why their club is special? Right, because that is different, yeah. 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 And, and, and yeah. also because it's about the story that, that the fans tell themselves. We all tell ourselves stories of who yeah. we are and what we're not. Fans have stories about what they tell their team. And, of course, it changes as an Arsenal fan. Mm -hmm. You know, under George Graham, we were boring, boring, 1-0 to the Arsenal, three men at the back and put... Uh, three, sorry, five centre-halves. Sorry, three centre-halves, five at the back and put your hand up in the air for the offside. Then we get Arsene Wenger and we are, we are criticising clubs that play boring football because we're playing the artistic football. So our story changed. The story that Arsenal fans told themselves changed. And that definition... I found because it gave me more variety. I, I, that kind of worked for me. You get what I'm saying? Does, does I think yeah. that gave me a little bit more definition. Um, but but you talked about the why, and then I think it's also focus and feedback. Those are your other two points, right? So about yeah, what yeah. about about what you do at the start. Yeah, and, and focus is is literally that. What what do you do in any business to put something on the agenda? You know what what are the what are the things that businesses do? They want to change something. So the people running the business, they'll do a number of things to make it clear that the change is necessary, that they support it, they're going to support people through it, and that it's now become a priority. So that could be, you know, that, there, there are a number of things here, but, you know, KPIs to start with. You know, so when we're looking at um, the match day experience and, and feedback, we see uh, very uh, few examples of, of clubs using uh, KPIs. Now, we've done some interesting um, kind of qualitative work on this in the past where we've uh, looked at KPIs like uh, Net Promoter, which is obviously popular in any other business, where you're looking for people to recommend you. And um, we found that, yeah, for a lot of people, for a lot of supporter types, new fans, families, visiting fans, corporate banqueting, you know, meeting customers, uh, hospitality customers, then then that's perfectly fine because they, they come in, they're relatively new to the service or it's a service or experience that they don't have very often. So you can ask them the net promoter question and tell them why, ask them why do you say that? And you've got an interesting picture begins to build. But then you get your, your, your core fans like, like you and me, you know, who are emotionally connected to our clubs. We did a little bit of work with a club in League One several years ago where we asked the question, um, you know, based on recent experiences, uh, how strongly would you, would you recommend the club? And we found that the recommendation levels were always incredibly high. We suspected they were artificially high. So we started asking a subsequent question, which was based on recent experiences, how personally valued do you feel as a supporter of this club? And then we found the answers to those questions were much, much lower. The ratings were much lower. So what we found, and I'm not going to overstate this because it was just some initial qualitative work that we did, but it suggested that hardcore fans if you like for want of a better word long-term emotionally connected fans find it difficult to separate their deeper love from the club from their individual experiences with the club and so if you ask them the former question they tend to be very forgiving and you know we've had situations where there'd be a a, um, a, a net positive net promoter score with a bunch of fans but actually if you ask the question around value 
it could be minus 50, you know, and then you start saying, okay, so why do you, why do you feel so um, personally unvalued? And then you get things like, you know, the club doesn't seem to stand for anything. I don't have a voice. Uh, the club's not transparent. Um, the food's dreadful. You know, you start getting things like that, which, which, which then come out. So I think that's the second thing after identity. It's having focus. And one of the principal ways of doing that is, is getting some KPIs in there. Um, just a couple of things. F- first of all, just quickly, what's the net promoter? I don't actually have any experience well, net, of that. Net promoter is something that was uh, Baines and Company and a couple of other consultancies back in the 80s developed it in America. And it was it was basically a way of connecting. Um, well, basically what it did was it lifted the profile of the customer experience in businesses because what it did was it showed that um, if you ask that simple question, on the basis of your most recent experiences with us and on a scale of 0 to 10, where 10 is the highest, how likely are you to recommend us to friends and family? And what they were able to show was there was a correlation. Those who mark 9 or 10, um, their likelihood of re-spending with you was huge. The 7s and 8s, kind of impossible to predict, and the 6 and below would actually do far less business with you. And it was tested, 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 proven, proven, proven across different industries and effectively has become part of standard practice in any customer-facing business. It had never been used in sport because I think people felt, well, sport's different. It's about emotions. But we've actually found that there are many supporter types, customer types that football clubs rely on for whom it is a very, very accurate measure. But what we're saying very clearly is that when you try to use it with um, with fans who are long-term fans, who've got that really strong emotional connection, it doesn't tend to be as reliable an indicator as maybe another question, like how personally valued do you feel by your club? And, you know, we've worked with, we tend to work with leagues more than we do with clubs. But when we work with clubs and we sit down and have, you know, focus groups and meetings with fans, it is it is very clear that that is the case. You know, they're not going to publicly criticise their club by giving a low recommendation score. They want more people to come and support the club. But actually, if you ask them a more pertinent question, you, and, and you've got to ask yourself the question, how willing are clubs to ask that question? Yeah, well, th- th- there's the old thing going on here. If you are an opposition fan, I will defend my club. Yeah. If if you're speaking to a fellow fan, you're going to criticise your club left, right and Absolutely. centre. Well, I was talking to uh, Sean Jarvis, who's the commercial director at Huddersfield Town last night. Sean and I have known each other for, for many years. And one of the things I like about Huddersfield and, you know, that the, they you know, really were a breath of fresh air in the, in the Premier League. It's not something that happened by accident. You know, that club's worked on these things for, for, for many years. And one of the little outputs, and I might be wrong, but it's just something I've spotted, is that um, on social media, when somebody, as happens with every club, starts having a goal, maybe because we haven't signed a great player yet or whatever it is, there's a, a large amount of Huddersfield fans will go on and defend the club. You know, and that's that's not something you see very often. You do see it. There are always some that will do that. But I think one, you know, one other KPI, if you start getting imaginative with your KPIs, is, you know, what, what percentage of criticism that comes on social media is actually defended not by you but by other fans because they can see the journey you're on they can see what you're trying to do you know and Huddersfield has been on a journey now for upwards of 10 years getting closer to the fans and and their I mean their definition of engagement will be doing things with the fans you know so for example they have this um, bike challenge every year they've done it for 10 years you know with members of staff and, and and fans business owners will pedal thousands and thousands of miles for the Yorkshire Air Ambulance so, you know, what, one of the ways they see engagement is actually doing things together. Uh, at my club, 
uh, last year when the new owners came in, they uh, invited fans to help, um, you know, uh, paint the seats. All this, all the set. Well, new seats were put in. Basically, we had some faded red seats, and it was a, it was something. Fancy. Were they facing the pitch or away from the pitch? We, well, we turned them round. Oh, the, okay, okay. <laughs> after the previous season, that might have been a controversial move. After the previous two seasons, actually, you know, this, this is a, this is a. I mean, you know, joking apart, but you know, that's our identity. You know, if you were going to ask why, you know, us, it's. You know, it's manufacturing, industrial, shipbuilding background. So it's all about effort. It's about determination. It's about the Alex Rays, the Kevin Balls, the Lee Catamols. It's about the, you know, the people, you know, leaving their foot in sometimes because it's just that determination to want to win. It's never been about sparkling football. It's never been like we're not a West Ham. We're not a Fulham. You know, we're not a kind of a fancy Dan type. I'm not not suggesting that West Ham and Fulham are fancy downs, but you know what I mean. Clubs have that identity, and for hours it's always been about grit and determination. But with the Netflix series and everything else, I think it's 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 also about you know heartbreak. You know, it's about snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. It's about if anything can go wrong, it will. There is now a phrase in the in the vernacular, "doing a Sunderland." I mean, you know, we had two <laughs> two appearances at Wembley this season. One we lost in uh, by penalties, and the other we lost three seconds from the end of normal time you know so kind of that's us that's how that's how we do things if it can go wrong it will i was sat next to my son there was 10 seconds to go i said we're going to we're going to concede and we did because that's what we do. <laughs> but i mean it's i went to university in newcastle in the early yeah. 90s i grew up in the people's republic of essex so uh, as an arsenal fan it, uh, um, uh, we were a satellite of london or where i lived was very close to london only when I went to Newcastle and then I went to places like Sunderland and Middlesbrough did I understand the concept of everyone in the in in the town supporting one club. Because where yeah. I was in the class, it was full of West Ham. When I was in Essex, Arsenal fans, West Ham fans, uh, yeah, yeah. Tottenham fans. You know, the odd QPR fan. There might be a, the odd Leighton Orient fan in there. Who who knows? But it was a mixture. But yet, when I was when I was in in Newcastle, they were all black and white. You know, yeah. and when I was was in Sunderland, they were all Mackhams. They were all red and white. And and that yeah. concept was new to me. I found it interesting. I suppose it's something I hadn't really thought about before even even to the extent that i was uh, you know tr tr trying to be a journalist at the time and of course the the banners on the newspapers in the street you can't put newcastle or sunderland so they put toon and they put Mackham and the importance of nicknames was yeah. really important because the name of the city was the name of the club Right, so so they had to use nicknames in a way that I'd never seen nicknames used. I, yeah. ni nicknames were quite about un, unimportant for for an Arsenal fan because there's only one club called Arsenal, right? Yeah, you know, and only one club called Spurs. And when you talk about West Ham, everyone assumes you're talking about West Ham United rather than the very small area of London, for yeah. example. I thought I thought that was interesting. Anyway, so we're we're still going through those first three yeah, questions. Yeah. So you've done your why, you've done your focus, and your third one, if I if I'm right, is feedback. For a, as a catalyst for change, well, just, so I think that. I think you know di dialogue is important, and you know there are people like Kevin Rye um, who do some fantastic work in this area, um, and that is just actually finding ways to introduce structured feedback to the club. The problem is that if you do some research, if you're I don't know if you're making confectionery or you're selling crisps, and you do feedback with customers, you know you ring them up, they'll come to a focus group, everything's fine. But with football, because there is a pre-existing kind of, how shall I put it? 
this kind of it's just a pre-existing readiness to perhaps not fully trust that the club has been wholly 100% honest in its endeavors i think that's that's i'm, I'm trying not to overstress that it's it's not it's not rampant but it's i think clubs need to do more and i think just having a fan survey you know every 5 years is is not enough you know you need a proper structured approach where you've got access to all of the different fan communities out there but you know they'll often be Judy and People's Front, People's Front of Judea, et cetera, et cetera, among the fan, as you, as you know at Arsenal, you know, you've got different fan groups. Having representation from each of those fan groups in a, a transparent um, public setting with a structured approach can be can be huge for clubs. You know, you can make a lot of progress. I mean, you can make a lot of progress without doing that, but it just makes it a lot easier if you develop an approach that everyone can sign up to and you can actually make some, some, some progress. A good example would be uh, the Red and White Army at Sunderland. You know, this is come out of the disaster of the last few years because it hasn't just been on the pitch, it's been off the pitch in terms of the club's relation with its supporters. Um, and that has allowed one group of, um, one one organisation, if you like, one representation that's uh, attended and supported by all the different parts of the Sunderland supporting community. And Se- Seattle Sounders did something uh, similar se- you know, several years ago where everyone who was a season ticket holder, always who, who was prepared to pay a small fee, could be a part of a kind of a general movement. You, you'd have a vote, you would elect a group of 40 to 50 people, they would then become the council and they would meet with the ownership team once a, once a quarter. So you'd have a very transparent process. So I think that's key. And it's got to be right for the size of the club. So, you know, if you've got a, a small club and you're in the Isthmian League, you know, you don't need a, a massively complex, you know, process with 50 people on a council. You just need something that's right for you. But it does need to be structured. And I think then it needs to be eat. I mean, you know, and then this has got to the other extreme, the match day experience. We have attended 310 or assessed 310 different matches this past season across Europe. How many times did we receive an email after the game, having bought a ticket for that game, asking us for feedback on the experience? You know, and I don't know if you can guess, but it, it was once, you know, out of 310. And it won't surprise you to learn that your previous guest, Mr. Baz Schnatter of AZ Alkmaar, was actually responsible for that. You know, because he <laughs> He's a SWAT, isn't he? What a well, SWAT knows, he is! But he knows how that works and how important <laughs> yeah. that is because it works on two levels. One, it gives the club valuable data. But secondly, it says to fans, this is important to us. So it's not just a question of having a, you know, a, a fan panel once every you know, three years. It's about being transparently committed to it and seeing it through so that it's not just those people that get to speak to the chief executive. There is a continuous flow of feedback coming through. And, you know, I see this, there are big opportunities, you know, to have voting buttons on social media to, you know, to do things. Football knows it's going to get a lot of grief, but that's just because it's football and it's very emotional, but it's no excuse not to do it. Yeah. And I think that, I think that's an important point. I mean, I was going to come to the fan experience and I'll come to social media in a bit, but let's, as you brought this up, let's talk about it because the issue is, one of the issues you've you've raised there is football's always held the fans at arm's length for all sorts of reasons Um, and and many clubs continue to do so because as you said with the Monty Python reference, there's fan groups with different views and different opinions and of course if they get any information they'll put it out on social media and that might cause embarrassment and that might end up in a newspaper and oh dear, all these things will go wrong supposedly from the club's point of view and they get extremely sensitive clubs. But what you're talking about is opening yourself up more to fans' scrutiny when clubs have been so resistant 
yeah. about that and literally holding fans at arm length. You'll have one supporters group uh, a month at best and there'll be certain things on the table and mm. you'll try and do one or two things of the 15 because most of the 15 are very hard to do. There'll be some issue that, that stops them happening. But clubs will sometimes also pay lip service to those one or two things to keep people happy because that's all they can do, because it's just too hard to do what the fans want, because the fans want much more information than the clubs are prepared to give and much more proximity and closeness to the clubs that, 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 that the clubs are, are, are comfortable with. Mm. That's It's true, but, you know, it's not to say it, 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 it isn't possible to do more. You know, I think the if you look at just this this year with owners, without without looking at specific clubs, We've got we've had a lot of issues this year, you know. In in the um, EFL, you know, you've got several clubs where you know fans, because either there's no information, or because they're not getting answers to questions, naturally are going to be thinking more negatively about their club, you know. And it's 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 one of those things. I mean, we haven't even talked about this, but you know the the fact that there'll be an owner of a football club who doesn't know what that football club represents to its community. It should be sent, you know, should be a red flag straight away. You know, you wouldn't appoint someone chief executive of Tesco if they didn't know what that, that supermarket's brand was and what its USP was and what its position in the market was. And I'm not saying you, you have to know this before you take the club over, but you get a lot of people that seem to make decisions that fly in the face of what fans expect that club to stand for. But I think, you know, there are more qualified people than me that can talk about this. And as I say, Kevin's the expert on the uh, the structured dialogue. But I do think there's another thing about focus as well, and that's and that's keeping it visible. You know, so for example, um, you know, having having people um, who you can see on a match day. You know, having having senior members of staff just out walking about, talking to people. I know some of them wouldn't want to do it, but there are some that do. Um, the commercial director at Leeds Rhinos, for example, in rugby, he is present at the main entrance of the ground at every single game, and they've had a terrible season. They've had one of their worst ever seasons, and you know there's a chance they could get relegated, which would be unprecedented for that club. But he's there greeting everybody, and it looks like you know if you get a big crowd of twenty thousand plus there, I'm asking myself, you know, does he know them all? And I ask him, and he said, well, because I've done this for years, I do actually, <laughs> I do know them. And and again, that makes that makes a, a, a huge difference. You know, it was something Neil Doncaster did when he was at Norwich City. I mean, he's not well liked by Scottish fans by his own admission. He's you know, he's, he's made a lot of changes up there, that, you know, that um, uh, have made him um, a target for a lot of uh, fans' anger. But when he was at Norwich, he did the same thing. He would be there at Carroll Road every weekend, just waiting on the corner and chatting to fans. And I think if you do that and you commit to that, you do that over a period of time, um, if the team's playing badly, then fair enough. You know, you're there. You're still there. Uh, Alkmaar have a, 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 a little habit at the end of every game where they'll take two players Immediately after the game, maybe maybe 20 minutes, half an hour after the game, they'll take them through uh, the two or three main bars of the ground. And one of them is the supporter room bar. The game we were at, they'd lost 2-0 to Willem Tilburg and they'd, lost, uh, they'd played terribly. But these two kids are doing this because it's part of the tradition of that club. And they didn't get any abuse. They got welcomed, they got selfies, they got hugged, they got respect. Because it's it's something that club does to show that it is close to its fans. It doesn't hide anything. They don't stand back. Of course, they've had a brilliant season. They qualified for Europe, and that was probably the one worst game that we saw. But it's things like that, things that that, that can, things that you can do to keep it centre 
and upfront on the agenda that you're actually interested in fans, you feel a responsibility to fans, and you're acting in the fans' best interests. Yeah, and that pays you off long term. I was going to say before that Rapids, one of the well, probably one of the biggest achievements that I had as a, being in charge of digital. So I was head of comms and head of digital, and I replied to everyone on Facebook. I liked everything, every comment that wasn't critical, and replied to as many as I could, and. What I found, not only did it double our, our followership in a year, but when we got some stick, the fans, other fans, de- defended us very quickly because we'd had some credit in the bank because we were talking, albeit digitally, we were talking and reaching out to people. Just mo- moving on, you talked about touch points. So yes. what, are the, what are the key touch points that any club has to, has to look at in a fan experience strategy? Yeah, well, in in general terms, I mean, again, you know, touch point you can define as a very minute element. So it could be, you know, it could be the process of 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 paying the money to the person at the uh, refreshments kiosk. But the way we look at it, we we look at, at eight general areas, and that allows us to draw some conclusions about what best practice should be for the different for the different fan types. Um, so, I mean, finding information is a key one. So that's how the club uh, makes it possible for people to find information. So the website, um, how they uh, promote um, match attendance, uh, how they use their website to make it easy for different groups to be able to book. So, for example, when we first started working um, 15, 20 years ago, there wasn't one club with a first-time fan page on their website. So people thinking of coming to their first game or perhaps thinking of bringing kids or new to the club, just to basically explain a little bit about the club, what's involved in the match day, why it's more than 90 minutes, what you should do, what you shouldn't miss out on, you know, this this sort of thing. Now that's legion now, that's legion because cl- clubs have realised that if they want to reach out to a more diverse fan base, they need to, you know, like you said at the start, it's not a case of if we build it, they will come. Stop making assumptions. Some people might not know that the game kicks off at three o'clock. And as we know these days, you know, quite, quite a few don't. So in terms of being able to purchase tickets easily, being able to uh, reassure yourself of what you need to do, the first impressions are important. So finding information, the website, ticket purchase, that's that's a key area for us. Second one, social media. Now, we are not experts in social media, but what we are looking at is what clubs are doing to use social media to attract, engage and retain people coming to matches. You know, so we're not into, you know, how do you uh, engage a global fan base? That's not our interest. Our interest is is strictly how does the online social media element affect the club's ability to drive attendance offline? So, for example, it's, it's things we've talked about before. To what extent is it a two-way dialogue and not just putting out but not receiving? To what extent it is segmented so that there is, a, you know, for example, a mass on social media can be a great idea because it means that you take all the kind of junior communications out of the core Twitter account and you put it on a different one, which means you can use that then to to communicate lots of family and child related information. But it's also feedback. And we've talked about that, you know, being able to use social media for that. The journey, we look at the last mile, you know, to what extent can the club influence or control um, ease of getting there. That's a stress point for people who aren't season ticket holders, for people attending occasional games and people attending their first games, and especially stress point for people bringing children. So what are clubs doing to make it easy to get to get part there? We've seen Wickham Wanderers 
run a scheme recently where if you come with a full car, you get to close uh, park close to the ground. It's a lovely little environmental thing, but you know how difficult it is to get in and out of Adams Park. That means that they can actually do something positive and get a positive message out to get people in. We look at the uh, everything outside of the stadium. I guess everything before you um, swipe your ticket or go through the turnstiles. So that's, you know, as we've said, that could be anything from a fan zone, activities, entertainment, singing, the mascot, a beer stand, you know, real ale at, uh, down at Brighton, whatever. But the things that get people down to the stadium well before kickoff, you know, that's, that's another key touch point for us. We then have retail and merchandise, naturally, and we have the refreshments experience as two specific ones. Then we look inside the stadium and everything that happens once you get in, inside. And that, of course, is a huge area ranging from stewards to pre-match, half-time, post-match entertainment, to the quality and the comfort, the view, the atmosphere, um, the facilities, the concourse. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a huge thing. So over the years, depending on the fan segment that we're working with and the league and um, association we're working with, the actual subsets of uh, areas of focus will, will differ. But in general terms, we, we look at those areas because we feel that they represent the opportunities that clubs have to more positively influence the fan experience in a way that will actually continue to engage existing fan groups and actually attract and retain new fan groups. And we've done it now, what, 15, 15 years. And, um, you know, some of the questions are the same. Some are slightly different. It tends to evolve, you know. If you'd asked me 15 years ago, clearly there wasn't much on social media, if anything. You know, when you think uh, it's, it, it is still very recent, isn't it? Facebook was, what, 2008, something like that? Um, and, six, yeah. yeah, and TripAdvisor was 2006. So I know, I know that much. So that the and what we can do with the touch points is that we can we have a, a way of measuring the touch points. The more leagues and associations we work with, the more benchmarking data and examples of best practice we're able to collate. So that, for example, when we're working with the Eredivisie in the Netherlands, and we're looking at a particular club. We can compare that club's approach to retail and merchandise, for example, against a lot of similar sized clubs in other leagues in Europe and probably pick out two or three relevant, realistic, effective and pragmatic and achievable things they could do to actually improve that experience. And, you know, and vice versa. You know, we when we first started in Europe, a lot of people wanted to learn, you know, what is it the EFL are doing to drive family attendance up so much? But actually, as often as not, we're coming back to the UK and saying, here's a brilliant idea we picked up in uh, Odense in Denmark, or here's something wonderful that Narva Trans are doing in Estonia, or, you know, or it could even be a, woman, a, a women's club in Denmark, you know, such as uh, Odense Kuh or FCN. You know, there's some, there are some incredible things going on, but by structuring them within these eight touch points, it gives us the opportunity to capture that, measure it, benchmark it, and share it with others. You know, so that's something that we hope to see grow even further in the future. You've talked about many touch points touch there, points. and you've also talked about offering a return on that investment, you know, with, with away fan attendance going up, for example. But say I'm a non-league club. Say I'm a non-league club and I haven't got any yeah. money at all. You know, just give me a couple of things that I could do spending zero money that mm-hmm. you think would give me bang for my lack of buck <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. in the fan engagement space. Tell people about your free car park. Tell people about your social club. We've done lots of work in grassroots levels and the clubs tend to be very quiet about the assets that mean most. They'll tell people when the game starts, they'll say it's three o'clock, they'll see who the opposition is, 
but they're narrowing their, their future audience by not saying, we have a fantastic social club, we have really good sandwiches, our speciality is a meat and potato pie, make sure you get there for one o'clock because they sell out quickly, and the free car park. I mean, it's, you know, if you're someone who's getting cheesed off with football at a high level, you want to go to your local club, the fact that they have a free car park to you is a big thing. But the problem is, to their existing audience, well, we already know. We already know the car park's free. We know when to get there. So, you know, I'm not being, I'm not trying to be superficial here. I'm just saying that when it comes to grassroots and non-league football, the question is, what are our assets? And, you know, if, if we're not going to spend a penny, but if it means just putting something on social media and the website to, to say more about the wider experience, you know, so we, we do that. We work with um, right up and down the pyramid with the FA. And we often find that's, or we find that is the common the common opportunity is not that the clubs don't have assets or don't have a good experience, is that they they keep quiet about it. You know, and you know how good it is at places like Lewis and Dulwich Hamlet, and they've become kind of touchstones for the wider non-league um, you know movement. And but there are a lot of clubs like that, and there are a lot of clubs that that you know don't make anything of what makes them special. And as a consequence, you know, they tend to you know, their their fan base just gets 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 older. But, you know, uh, Bake Up Borough up in um up in the, the wilds of Lancashire, you know, we went there a couple of years ago and they have a they have a pie called the Premiership Pie and it was so named because it once appeared on Sky Sports and obviously the they call it Premiership. You know, we always forget the name of the Premier League, but they call it the Premiership Pie because a Sky Sports reporter christened it the Premiership Pie. But you know, when I was first there I said, Well I didn't know anything about this you know, you should have this on your website. You should tell people about this. You know, you should make a big thing of it. I mean, it's Kieran Trippier's brother that plays for the team was the main big thing, you know, or played for the team. But, you know, for somebody coming along, knowing that this 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 absolutely tremendous pie, and I can vouch for how good it was, you know, a big tray bake one as well, like a proper, you know, one you get at school when you were a kid, you know, with big chunks. And it was just absolutely wonderful. And I think for a lot of uh, clubs at grassroots levels, it's not about spending a penny. It's not about spending money. It's about just thinking, what have we got that would actually appeal to a wider audience? And then, you know, telling people about it. The role of the supporters liaison officer, it's, well, for a, for a start, it exists now. And I'd argue there weren't too many of them 10 years ago. But how's that role developed and what do good ones do now? What, what, what's the role of a good one now? Yeah, good one. Good example would be Doncaster Rovers, where you've got a, a very visible, to start with, they're very visible. Sometimes they're not visible at all. And there are clubs where if you look across on their website, you won't be able to find uh, the name of the person who is the, the, the SLO. Partly, I think this is because that when the SLO was first um, introduced by UEFA with the uh, FFP regulations, I think they had half an eye on Central and Eastern Europe where the role of the SLO is about liaising between police, away fans, security people, and a lot to do with safety, protection, and the rule of law. Um, however, as this is less of an issue, um, much less of an issue in, in, in Western Europe, um, I think that's been one of the reasons why the SLOs had a lower profile. However, in places like Sweden and Germany, you've seen SLOs take really strong, high-profile ro- uh, high roles of being the conduit between the fans and the clubs on, on a range of issues, on, on, on not just match attendance and travel, but on consultation, on, on uh, you know the, the structured dialogue that we talked about before, being present on a match day, talking to people, being part of the here-to-help reception team, answering questions. And that's why I go back to... Uh, Doncaster Rovers, they they have a couple of SLOs, so they have good coverage. They, for example, have an SLO Twitter account for away fans. 
So if you're visiting Doncaster Rovers, you can actually follow Donny's SLO with a dedicated away Twitter account to see to organise things like you know flags and banners. When's your bus arriving? What is there to do before the game? And he and she will actually meet you off the coach. You know when you get there. So they they for me are a very good example of, um, of of what SLO should be. So it's you know going beyond kind of the person who's responsible for organising that everything passes safely between the home and the away fans and uh, and any security uh, bodies, but but actually being that connection that that actually is the um, I don't know is the is the welcome to away fans is the point of contact for home fans is the um, the anchor around which all of the structured dialogue moves. And as a consequence, you need somebody pretty special to do that. You know, it's it's uh, it's it's difficult to you know to find someone who can do that. John Paul up at Celtic does a fantastic job. That's got to be one of the hardest ones. Looking at the numbers, looking at the particular challenges, um, but he does a fantastic job. Very very easy to get a hold of. Um, you got Tony Barrett at Liverpool, who you know who comes from a sports uh, journalism background, and it, you know he 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 kind of epitomises. Everything down to the humour, the resilience, you know, the readiness to actually sometimes tell people something they might not want to hear because it is actually, you know, the and, truth. and that's the important thing because they need to have real humility. They've also got to have gravitas. They've also got to be aware that they're speaking on behalf of the club, and yet it doesn't work if every communication has to be checked and passed up the line. So they've got to act literally as human beings yeah. on behalf of the club. And you know what? That's really hard to do sometimes. It is. It is, it is difficult. And I, I mean, you know, underlining everything I've said here is that, of course, it's not easy. You know, it's not easy. If it was easy, people would have done this a long time ago. Every club wants to have a good relationship with fans. Every club wants to put on an experience that everybody is proud of. And I don't know anyone in football that sets out not to do that. They all want to do it. But the variables in football, the barriers, the challenges, and, you know, it's, it's key. And the emotion and the opinions and yeah. the involvement, yeah, yeah. The, the intensity that people have yeah. around football. It, yeah, it makes it a hard job, extremely hard job. It, it, it does. And so it's a credit, you know, to those leagues and those clubs that, that, that keep pushing forward, you know, keep trying to do things. I mean, you know, it's, I'm sure it's still the case. But the fact that if you want to do a mascot package at Arsenal, you know, you, it, there's no cost involved. You're chosen from the, the junior membership. And ranks. that's rare. That's rare yeah. as well. And that after that, after the experience, there are all sorts of surprises that you weren't aware were happening. And I, I don't want to spoil, spoil it. But, you know, uh, just just for one is that I understand it is it is you know, there are photographs taken and a film made. And so the person who gets to be the mascot for the day, to his or her delight and surprise, will get a, a, a keepsake that they can keep forever. You know, Middlesbrough do this with kids attending their first game, Luton, uh, where they get to wave a giant flag and unbeknown to them, the official photographer takes a picture. They receive that some days later. Luton Town have a wonderful first match experience thing where you meet a director, get a tour of the stadium, you get a hat and scarf or when you come back to your next game. However many kids are in the group, they all get a free hat and scarf. And Danny Lee's doing some wonderful work down at Swindon Town where, again, if you let them know you're doing your first, you're taking your kids to their first game, you're going to get uh, something you remember for the rest of your life. And that's the thing, which all of this comes under that heading, fan engagement. So, you know, you have to, the only way it works is defining it as everything you do to attract, engage, and retain supporters in a way that makes your club sustainable. And as a footnote, we're actually doing, uh, we've got a, a graduate, a master's um, 
uh, studying for his master's up at Durham University, who's actually doing some research for us, actually trying to uh, answer some of these questions in a little bit more detail, trying to understand what is the, uh, the business case, you know, what are the elements of fan engagement that can be tracked and can be shown to have a, uh, an impact on the bottom line? Because, as you know, there are so many variables that get in the way, but that shouldn't be a reason to not do it. Well, it, it it's the business case of caring. It is. Really, it is. it's the business case of caring that, you know, my argument, and I've written about it and blogged about it, is that, that sports lost its meaning. And this is putting, trying to put some meaning back into it because the other thing at play here, and which is an economic factor, is my son's 12 years old and there's a whole heap of things thrown at him that are competitions to mm. him attending a football match that weren't there when I was a kid. Not least, you know, he had MLB uh, yeah. at, at London Stadium Absolutely. recently. You spoke about the NFL. You've got overseas sports trying to get into England, whereas when I was growing up, it was football or cricket. Maybe rugby if you're posh, but basically it's football or cricket. Football in the winter, cricket in, in the summer, and that's me as a as a sporting human being. He has all sorts of things. I mean, there's yeah. there's esports as well, which you know that that's a I've heard you talk about before as another segue yeah. into the customer experience and housing esports demonstrations tournaments whatever at grounds that's an interesting point as well but that's trying to mold one of those new almost competitive experiences and making it part of the football experience right yeah well i mean they do the norwegian fa are doing that very well with the with the national team i think the guy's called marius Hiespeth. i might be wrong but he's a youtuber and a, a big influencer and they'll have uh, esports events before an international game, you know, to get the coat, the, 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 so the, the, the players come down, they meet one of the heroes, they're in the national stadium, they stay for the game, if I'm not mistaken. But then you've got, um, you've got other things, I think, uh, uh, I mean, Bromby's a great example. Bromby's Family Lounge has an e-sports e tournament at every game, and it's a proper professionally kitted out. I mean, they're, they're arguably the best family lounge I've seen in, in Europe. But another example, going to the first part of your, your comment there, which was that, you know, your kid's got other things you, you'll want to do. You've got a lot of startup sports, you know, expansion sports that are doing really interesting things, reaching out and using languages the kids understand. We went to see FC, Co, FC Copenhagen in, um, in Denmark, and they have a DJ and a rapper behind the goal in the kind of family stand, which is family, it's adults, it's kids, it's kind of, you know, there's no restrictions on who can go in there. But so they have the DJ behind the goal at the bottom, they have the rapper moving around the seats before the game, and that type of stuff is appealing to those older kids, the 12, 13, and 14-year-olds. You know, it's not just a furry mascot handing out sweets. I mean, you know, you, you lose your interest in, in, in that when you're very young. I mean, you get it back when you're my age because I like sweets being thrown at me, but that's just a, that's just a personal thing. But, no, the bottom line is that we, I, I could see that, that thing that FC Copenhagen was doing for me represented almost the, the evidence of a paradigm shift where they're beginning to think the answer to um, getting more 12, 13, 14, 15 year olds to commit to coming to football is to talk to 13, 14, 15, 16 year olds and say, so what do you do in your other spare time? What do you like to do? And then do it here. And that, that thing about the DJ and the rapper was just brilliant. I mean, I've got, we, we made a little video of it because it was just fantastic to see. And, you know, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, people's eyes open and ears prick up and jaws drop when they think, yeah, we could do that. That's easy. That would make a difference. You know, not necessarily in the family stand. You could have a more adult themed one and, you know, the other side of the ground. But, um, you know, it's it's good to see clubs are thinking like that. Do you see almost a, a split happening here between the sort of Champions League clubs and 
the rest of the football league, certainly in England or and the bottom half of the Premiership for that matter, the fact that the model has always been clubs make as much money as is humanly possible and then throw it at their football team in order to be successful. And that success will bring in supporters and people will accept anything in order to see their team win. Do you think that is an old model that is increasingly cracking and what you're moving towards here is a fan experience model where they're going to celebrate whatever being a Mansfield town is a Mansfield town fan is we're going to celebrate it every other weekend at Field Mill and that is going to be our reason for being rather than just making a heck of a lot of money and throwing it at the team on the off chance that we're going to have one season in 10 when we're going to be going for promotion. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. I mean, you 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 paint a picture of of two extremes, and of course, you know, winning is the one thing we always say. You know that the easiest way to grow a club is through winning. If you think you can control that, then that's fine. But if you can't, you need a plan B. And if plan B is discounting, then you're reducing your chances of winning. So you need a third option. You know, for a lot of clubs, it's as simple as that. And Mansfield are a very good example in as much as uh, they, they are very, very unique. They have a very clear strategy. They have some uh, clear values. They're trying to promote social cohesion. They're trying to promote um, uh, giving kids strong interpersonal skills. So one of the things they've done is removed any esports you know, from the uh, family uh, lounge, the, the kind of fan, fan zone before the match. And they actually have activities that bring kids together, working together and talking to each other, which is just absolutely brilliant. You know, so I'm pleased you mentioned Mansfield. They also have chalkboards on the back of seats in the family stand. So if the younger kids get bored, they can actually draw pictures. So that's, you know, wonder, wonderful, you know, some wonderful things going on at that at that club. But the, the point is, yeah, I think we're moving in that direction. I don't think we'll ever get away from the fact that it is going to be about the football, is going to be about winning. You know, there are a band of us at every club that will say it doesn't matter. You know, if Sunderland go bust and has to start again like AFC Wimbledon, we'll still be there. But we, you know, we'll still feel broken hearted that we're not actually, you know, a club in the top end of the league. But I think we are. I think out, you said is there, is, there, is there becoming two worlds. I think, yeah, outside of that world, outside of the Premier League, the top bit of the championship, the clubs that are spending, you know, uh, money hand over fist to get into the Premier League. That is the model that is much more sustainable moving forward. And, you know, there's there's a lot more going on. I mean, I, I don't have any real coherent views on on on, on ownership models, uh, you know, fit for purpose, all of these things, because they're clearly fundamental to this, is getting the right leaders into, into clubs. But I think for clubs outside of the elite, um, basing a strategy on doing your best on the pitch, but not neglecting off the pitch and actually seeing that as the opportunity. I think the, the way that it was it was said, it's been said to me probably once a year for the last 15 years, someone has said to me, I wish our club would sign one less player and a point one marketing or fan engagement person instead. Every, every year, <laughs> that to me because they've got some, you know, player who, you know, I don't know, some uh, Polish under twenty one kid who was very promising, but actually it hasn't worked out. And then you're thinking we're the same place we were last year. Nothing's changed. Yeah, if that money had been spent on a young graduate, come out of university, fresh ideas about how we can engage, how we can improve the match day experience, then actually that's going to make a difference on the bottom line. It's not one graduate. I mean, I did a blog about this. There was someone sat, I went to a conference and someone was saying at the front, content is king, content is king. And yet they're in charge of a team, sports team that had just signed one of those very flaky, yeah. flashy kind of players. And I'm there thinking, well, don't sign that guy. And your team will still be 95% of what they were. And yet 
it won't be yeah. one person you can get, one graduate. It'll be a whole raft. You'd have the best content team. Well, so, don't, so don't tell me content is king because you're not acting that way. You're throwing money in the black hole of, of player wages. I get it, but I just think there's bigger things at play here and identity and meaning, especially in the modern yeah. world, have just got so much more resonance given that, you know, the, the, the other thing we're talking about, it's not like me as an Arsenal fan Tottenham yeah. can have the best fan, fan experience in the world and the best content in the world. They're not getting a penny out of me. Newcastle are not getting a penny out of you. It doesn't matter what they do, right? Well, not Newcastle. Don't swear. It's Sunderland. <laughs> well, no, no, no. But, but what I'm saying yeah, is what you, mean. Yeah, yeah. you are a Sunderland fan, so Newcastle can do what the hell they want. Oh, absolutely. You're not spending any money on them. Yeah. Like uh, like Spurs can do whatever they want with, with, with yeah. me. It's not going to affect me because I'm an Arsenal fan. That's my identity. Yeah. And, and so that aspect of offering me value and deepening my experience through maybe it's sacrilege and taking a little bit out of those player wages and sticking it in the fan engagement side and the content side and telling the correct story that is resonant with the fans and then backing it up in the real world in every every kind of way i just think that's the way forward for 90 percent of clubs if you're outside the top six personally and yeah and there is one kind of glaring gap it's left probably the best thing to finish on, really, because yeah. when when we when we look at it, the the one thing that characterises growth sports, expansion sports, uh, is that everybody is tuned in to trying to create a good experience. And by that, I'm talking about the people that work the match days. You know, now we said at the start that you know the the traditional view of the steward is not positive in the, in this in this uh, country. That may be more of an away fan thing than, than a home fan thing, but there's still largely negative perceptions. So that you know, some clubs are very very good stewards, but it's very difficult to create a team of stewards who can um, fulfil all of their health and safety and stewarding um, responsibilities while being on the front foot and engaging like they work at uh, Disney World. You know, it's kind of I'm exaggerating, but you know, some clubs are finding the best way to do that is to bring in um, you know teams of here to help people or, or like Exeter City Club ambassadors who have been lifelong fans. They're easy to find. They tell you stories. They walk you around. They show you things. They greet you. They're, they're absolutely fantastic. Um, but I think that's the biggest gap between um, the sports business, particularly in the UK and other business when it comes to excellence is that there is not enough focus on the people doing the job. There's very little recognition. Uh, training seems to be you know, fairly fairly specifically based around you know requirements of the job and um one of the things that we've seen is uh, organizations like nfl uk major league baseball you know looking to recognize people sometimes in the moment for doing a great job on a match day now i'm not suggesting we can turn say league two into the nfl uk but for example working with fans to identify members of staff on a match day who have gone the extra mile tell stories about them feature them Ask them why they love the club and their job so much. Recognise and reward them. You know, we we have, we, you know, we have a um, we have awards in football, left, right, and centre. But it's very rare that we actually reward the people who have in their hands the opportunity to really do something special. So, for example, you're sitting in the crowd with your kids. You've been coming to watch a team that's that's losing all of the time. And all of a sudden, one of the club uh, staff comes across and said, you know, you, you, you come here all the time. You put up with so much. I've got a little surprise for you. Why don't you come and sit in the dugout with your kids during the pre-match warm-up, just as a little thank you from us. And it's just, that's, that's football in a nutshell. That's the power. You couldn't do that in Tesco. You couldn't do that in Starbucks. But you can do it in football. And it's so meaningful. A guy called Tom Gorinch, who's 
commercial director of Bristol Rovers, who was at uh, uh, Brighton previously and also worked at Portsmouth. He did that to a, a young family in Portsmouth. It must be getting on for 10, 12 years ago. And when he sent a photograph of this family sitting in the dugout to them about a week later, the dad came back and said, you do know my young son in the picture has leukemia, don't you? And Tom didn't know that. And he said on the way home from what was presumably another defeat, this young kid said that's the greatest thing that had ever happened to him in his life. You know, and, and, and that's that's what football should never should never lose. And that's why for me the biggest point of all is that whatever the story, as you said before, Rich, whatever the, the club stands for, whatever the journey it's been on, however well the team is playing, it's within the gift of the people that work at that club, particularly on a match day, to honour that, you know, to do those things. And we don't spend enough time supporting them, motivating them, encouraging them, and certainly not thanking them for doing that. On that call to action, Mark Bradley, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks, Rich. You can find Sports Content Strategy on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Go to sportscontentstrategy.com for more information and to sign up to the newsletter. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog at mrrichardclark.com. Mm-hmm.